0: Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Hello and welcome to our new short format servings of consciously prepared brain food designed to improve your mental fitness. This is Lisa cypress cayman your host. For more than 12 years, we've been proudly and consistently crafting harvesting happiness and sharing it with you. Each week, we spotlight diverse thinkers and doers who are contemporary trendsetters and change agents devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. We invite you to listen up and change the way you think about human happiness. Our award-winning content is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. All righty then, let's dive in. This episode offers psychosocial education designed to inspire and motivate our listeners. The information provided does not constitute a therapeutic relationship nor a substitute for professional mental health care. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, call 911, go to your nearest emergency room, or for listeners in the United States, text 988 for the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. This interview originally aired in February of 2022. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining me on today's show, where we will explore the anatomy of grief, the neuroscience of love, loss, and social stress. My guest today is Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor. She is an Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Arizona, where she directs the Grief, Loss, and Social Stress Lab, also known as GLASS, which investigates the effects of grief on the brain and body. Dr. O'Connor earned a doctorate from the University of Arizona in 2004 and completed a fellowship at UCLA. Following a faculty appointment at UCLA Cousins Center for Psychoneuroimmunology, she returned to the University of Arizona in 2012. Her work, has been published in the American Journal of Psychiatry, Biological Psychiatry, and Psychological Science, and featured in Newsweek, the New York Times, and the Washington Post. She's also the author of The Grieving Brain, The Surprising Science of How We Learn from Love and Loss. Oh, Mary Frances, thanks for joining me today.
1: It's so nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Lisa.
0: Well, I I love exploring these topics because, you know, we we all know that the loss of someone we love is not a happy event. And yet how we sort of process and package that loss can impact our well-being. Absolutely. And it's such a universal
1: experience. I think as much as we don't want to think about it because we're so anxious about death and loss at the same time, it really does affect everyone at some
0: point. Yes. It's a universal experience. It is a guarantee and there's no way out of it kind of thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Why is it so hard for us to wrap our head around this notion when our loved one has passed, like they're here one day and in many cases they're fine? you know, we're engaging with them. And then the next minute, poof, in an instant, it's over. It's changed. It's gone. Yes. Or
1: it's gone to the rest of the world. You know, our, our, I take a perspective, a neuroscientific perspective. And, and really when we bond with someone, a spouse, a child, a sibling, a very close friend, all of the neurochemistry of our brain is sort of motivating us to seek them out, to spend time with them, to be with them, to enjoy them when we're with them. And usually, you know, every morning when you, when you, you know, kiss your kids goodbye, they go off to school and you kiss your spouse and they go off to the office. Well, back when we used to do that, uh, you, (laughs) you, (laughs) you, you know, that they're going to come back, that they're going to come home, that you could go find them if, you know, some event happened. And that attachment belief that they are out there in the world, that they are your one and only that needs to be found if if you lose touch with them, that is such a strong overriding belief in the brain. And so if you think about it this way, you know, sometimes I describe the brain is like a predictive organ. We have it to help us to understand what might happen next. That's part of how it evolved. And the idea that someone might not come back to us, that's not a very good prediction, right? Right. Death is, thank God, a very unusual event. But the first day that you wake up next to that empty space in the bed, It doesn't really, your brain hasn't really understood yet, but they're not coming back. In fact, we hear this, we hear people say this, I feel like they're just going to walk back through the door.
0: Yes. And in the case of my aunt who passed, her partner of nearly 40 years, he still says that almost 10 months later. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And this is the thing. It takes our brain a long time to to sort of unlearn or relearn a bunch of new habits, right? Because everything we do day to day when we live with someone incorporates that other person like a dance, right? In the house. Indeed. And and also it it just that persistent belief. I can't say how strong it is, how much it influences the way we think
0: tell us for a minute the differences between in our brain between when there has been trauma and when there is this the, the the grief and loss of a loved one because there there are differences right yeah
1: yeah it's very interesting i think you know grief has not been studied systematically historically at least in psychology very much that's fortunately changing but what people originally thought was that grief was just a type of depression or a type of trauma. And what we understand now, in part because we understand the neurobiology a little better, is that grief is distinct. So for example, with trauma, there is usually a traumatic event although that can be a repeated event in the case, say, for example, of abuse. But usually there is an event and we come to expect these bad things to happen in the world because of, because of this trauma we've experienced. Grief is different in that it really is focused around the relationship to that beloved person. So while we feel the loss of them as though part of our self is missing, it isn't necessarily that we expect that other people, for example, are going to die in our life. Now, you can have an overlap. People can have both trauma and grief, just like you can have both depression and anxiety. But we do think of them as being somewhat separate and even treat them somewhat separately.
0: This is fascinating, because <laughs> we tend to lump them together, right? We, we mm-hmm. see the the loss of our loved one as a traumatic event. yeah. But what I think you're saying is that the brain's response to trauma is different than the brain's response to the loss of a loved one.
1: Yes. And part of the reason that I say that is, you know, with uh, the, with the, Loss when you think, well, what have you lost? Really, what's what's gone now? When we bond with someone, it's really creates these neurobiological changes in our brain. So, for example, in uh, in voles that mate for life, we can actually see in their brain there are epigenetic changes that happen when those voles have become each other's one and only. So <laughs> these changes, right, that happen in the brain are 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 permanent and so now we have to think about how does the brain then understand the fact that this person isn't there and and it really has to do with you know sometimes i hear people describe i just so much want them to be back and that is a different feeling than i'm very traumatized and i and i can't i feel hopeless or helpless in the world. Those are slightly different. It may sound yes. like putting hairs, but I think they are different.
0: Oh, I, I hear you. And I, I do see what you're saying. Grief causes us so many emotions. I mm. mean, it's really like a stew. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> the, you know, running the gamut from sort of the, you know, the, the sadness and the despair to the, you know, the anger and the rage.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think people are often shocked by both the intensity of the emotions that they experience like the volume dial just got turned up and also i think grief is very frequently not what people are expecting it to be like and even if you have had grief over someone who has died previously in your life a new uh, a new loss may bring with it very different feelings I wanted to
0: ask you about that because, Mm. you know, we, it came to my mind as you were speaking that we think we know how we might respond to the loss, Mm -hmm. let's say of an elderly grandparent, you know, when we're young, we experience that loss. And that response is very different to the loss of our partner. Absolutely. I sometimes say,
1: you know, the loss the grief that we feel is really an extension of the love that we felt, and certainly we feel very different kinds of love for different people in our lives, don't we? Indeed. So maybe it doesn't, maybe it's not so surprising that the grief feels very different. And, you know, one of the feelings that people really struggle with sometimes is relief. So often we feel a great deal of relief when a person dies, and then you feel terrible guilt thinking, well, how can I feel relief about this? So lots of unexpected experiences.
0: When there's been a prolonged illness or somebody has suffered yes. you know, for a long time, there is some solace when they finally go. And I can definitely Absolutely. see you know, how there, there can be guilt as well. Like, oh, how could you be thinking that was a good thing that that person finally died, you know? That's right. Yes, that's right. And, you know, we have to remember that there are
1: also, sometimes I call it losing the less than loved one. Right? Not everyone that we are connected to makes our life better. And so you have situations where an ex-spouse dies or a person who was an alcoholic and had a very difficult road to hoe, but also made your own life very difficult. And that also leads to its own set of
0: um, really complicating confusing experiences. I want to talk to you or talk with you about complicated grief, but I want to save it for the next segment because I think it will take longer than sort of a, a finishing thought or a topper, you know? Um, mm-hmm. But one of the things that people will often ask when they're going through this is like, I just want it to end. How long is this going to go on? Like, I don't think I yeah. can, you know, do this forever. And, yeah. you know, what, what do we say? What can we offer to somebody who is, is in that place.
1: Mm, You know, I do hear this a lot. And actually, I hear this a lot from clinicians. Even when I lecture to medical residents, they all want to know. But really, like, how much is normal? And I try (laughs) to tell them. Yes, the spectrum of normal. (laughs) Yes, but there really isn't an end date. Here's an example. Um, You know, it's a very different uh, analogy. But if I say to you, when did you get over your wedding day? right? That's a really (laughs) bizarre question. There's no answer to that. And yet, that's very much what it's like. There was an event. It was profoundly life-changing. It impacted my whole family and all the people I, I, you know, interact with. And now I, I live this slightly different identity. That's true with widowhood as well, isn't it? Or losing a child. It what does it mean to be a parent who doesn't have a child how do we understand that so but to be to help people feel a little more uh, at ease the intensity of those waves of grief that knock you over the intensity does usually recede a little bit and more than that grief is different from grieving so even if we have grief even if we get knocked off our feet again and again the way we understand that experience changes over time. It feels more familiar, you develop better ways to deal with it, and you also start to restore a meaningful life, and that helps too.
0: Yeah, I definitely want to talk about that, about the meaning making in the, in the grief process, but we should go take a break. So okay. to learn more about the work of Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor, please visit MaryFrancesOConnor.com. We're talking about her book, The Grieving Brain, The Surprising Science of How We Learn from Love and Loss. You can connect with Dr. O'Connor on Twitter at Dr. MFO. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. Before we take that break, let's chat about the summer heat and laziness in the kitchen. These days, the last thing I feel like doing is grocery shopping, prepping, and turning on that hot oven. That's why I'm a big fan of today's episode sponsor, Every Plate. Every Plate is America's best value meal kit that delivers easy prep, no oven meals without compromising quality, taste, and nutrition Right to your doorstep. The beauty of every plate is a huge variety of delicious choices, so you'll never get stuck in a same old, same old cooking rut. With 26 tasty and affordable recipes that change each week and pull together in 15 minutes or less and are oven free, you'll spend less on groceries, less time in the kitchen, and end up with more money and time to play in the summer sunshine. Enjoy satisfying appetizing options like linguini with burst tomato and kale, cantina style shrimp tacos, and bon me bowls that you can whip up in a jiffy. My most recent favorite is the roasted bell pepper flatbread yum in fact, every plates Lower price point meal kits are so well known that it is what sets every plate apart from the others. At first, I was skeptical about every plate delivering deliciousness at a much lower cost, but I was happily satisfied, and I know you will be too. At our home office, we use every plate for weekday lunches and dinners to save time and money without compromising taste or healthfulness. All the money we save is going towards a trip to Europe in the fall, and right now, our listeners can grab a valuable offer worth. up to $110. Get started with Every Plate for just $1.49 per meal by going to everyplate.com slash podcast and entering code 49HH. Get $1.49 per meal by going to everyplate.com slash podcast and entering code 49HH. Now let's take that pause. We'll be right back. Research tells us that happiness is good for our health. Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow me on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for nutritious helpings of positive goodness. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And at times, we all need a little support. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and at the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com to explore experiential online and on-site optimal lifestyle management consulting services, including recovery fortification and life crisis triage. And we're back continuing the conversation with Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor as we explore the anatomy of grief, the neuroscience of love, loss, and social stress. Let's get back to it. Mary Frances, just prior to the break, we said we were going to come back and touch upon um, the differences between grief and complicated grief. And I think this is a good point to kind of dip in to differentiate.
1: Yeah, I I like to make this distinction because since we know that grieving lasts and lasts, then you ask yourself, well, well, how do we we know who might need intervention, who might need help? And this was exactly the issue in the 1990s. A bunch of grief researchers and clinicians came together and tried to develop uh, a group of criteria. What symptoms might we expect to see when people are not adapting very well so that we would know this is the group of people we want to try to intervene and help with. And that research has now proceeded for a couple of decades. And the the DSM-5 will actually include prolonged grief disorder in its uh, upcoming revised edition. So prolonged grief disorder and complicated grief aren't identical, but I'm going to use the same terms here because it will be just easier for, for the general audience. I like the term complicated grief because I think of it this way. You know, grief is a natural response to loss. So, for example, if you break your leg, you're not actually doing anything to heal. You're not, you know, thinking hard about it or something. Those those bones are knitting back together on their own. And that's, and that's a natural process of healing that takes time and might require support, right? Might require a cast. But what happens sometimes is there are complications. So you get an infection or there's a secondary trauma to the, to the leg, right? Another break. And now we really do need doctors to go in and intervene and help. I think of complicated grief in a similar way. If we can identify some complications, then we can help to address those to get people back on that natural healing path
0: great answer actually i mean it, <laughs> may, it makes perfect sense and and how what would be some of the telltale signs of somebody who mm. had moved beyond just the generic for lack mm-hmm. of a better term generic grief and loss to this complicated grief
1: Yeah. You know, I think it can be so difficult for an individual. As I said, sometimes they say, this is the worst I have ever felt, right? So it's hard to imagine, well, how do I not have complicated grief if this is the worst that I've ever felt? But in fact, when we look across the spectrum, we're looking at things like, the person who is unable to get up and go out to work mm-hmm. right it's impacting their daily life i had a um i had a participant in a research study say to me you know why would i give my children bar mitzvahs if their grandmother isn't there to see it right wow. so We've really changed the way we're interacting in life. It's not just affecting us, it's affecting our family. it's affecting our our work life and and so that inability to function in a in a resilient way is where we start to think this is becoming something that could use intervention
0: understood. and there's no timetable between the two, or is there you know well,
1: there's not in the sense that as I said before, grieving, you know, is just a a change in life. We do look to, because many of our cultural institutions and religious institutions think of one year as a very uh, specific time period where there are a lot of sort of anniversary things that we imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't diagnose prolonged grief disorder until at least a year after the death, because it as we said, it does take a long time even to just sort of figure out if you're on the healing trajectory or not. Uh, so, so we do make that distinction.
0: So, for example, somebody is not operating well in their lives mm. two, three, four, five years out after mm-hmm. the loss of a loved one. Yeah. Might that indicate that there's an issue that needs attention? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
1: And, you know, my experience has been that when people are told what, you know, some of the symptoms are or they read more about complicated grief or prolonged grief disorder, they're very often able to say, oh, yes, now I see. It's not just me. This isn't just what people go through. This is something specific and that there might be a way for me to actually get help because we see people. It's been decades and we've seen people who get targeted intervention and and actually, go on then to restore a meaningful life.
0: That's very promising. That's yeah. actually that's wonderful because I do yeah. know that there are people out there who do suffer for prolonged amounts of time yes. in that complicated grief state where they're just not bouncing back. They're not. They're that's not right. thriving.
1: That's right. Exactly. It's not that we don't expect grieving to change you. We just want you to also like the person that you've changed into.
0: Mm. Oh, I like that. um, Tell us a little bit about the brain in grief, like what kinds of changes do we see and in what parts of the brain?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question. And, you know, the neurobiology of grief sort of studying this has grown up at the same time as a field as neuroscience as a field has grown up. And so the way we think about um, looking at the brain has changed over time. So I'll, I'll say this first. We mostly have studies of grief and not grieving, right? Mm. So we, we don't actually have a lot of studies, very, very few, where we do a neuroimaging scan of the same person, you know, maybe two months and then a year after the death of someone. We mostly have just the one moment in time when they come in and they're having, uh, they're feeling grief in the scanner. However, having said that, Grief is complex. And so, of course, it involves lots of parts of your brain. It involves memory. It involves uh, being able to take perspective. It involves emotion and even things like, you know, regulating your heart rate and uh, uh, all of these different uh, parts of the brain are involved in grief. But One thing we have noted is that there are – this is sort of new work coming out. Saren Seeley, one of my uh, graduate students who's now um, uh, got her own uh, uh, lab and and research, she did a study where we just asked people to lie in the scanner just as they were. No task for them to do. Just think whatever comes to your mind. And one of the things she discovered was – the brain is sort of in different states at different moments, different connections between parts of the brain. Uh, so that you can see sort of, uh, you you might think of them as uh, uh, these interconnected patterns that we're in for a little period of time, and then we shift. And what she found was that people who had complicated grief tended to dwell in one state longer than others. And This is a bit of an interpretation, but you might almost say they got stuck in that state for Hmm. longer than people who were not experiencing such severe grief. And so I think this is helpful maybe to think about how does the brain and the mind connect so that we might try to do interventions that make sense, given what we're seeing with the neurobiology.
0: And I'm wondering, the interventions... Are they grief-related or are they attention-related? How we work with our own minds. Oh, that's a wonderful question. That's a very sophisticated question. <laughs> you know. oh, Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I would say that it's both, honestly. So, one of the things in complicated grief treatment, which is an empirically supported multiple randomized clinical trials, complicated grief treatment, for example, helps people to figure out how to move into the feeling of grief and then out of it again. So, teaching them this flexibility, and a lot of that has to do, as you say, with where we put our attention. So, for example, uh, in this type of therapy, we ask people to tell the story of what happened when their loved one died, we actually record them s- telling that story, and then we ask them to listen to it every day. And the reason is it takes skill. It takes practice to kind of go there, right, into yeah, that. most way, definitely. And then also find how to get yourself back into day-to-day life. Right, so learning these skills to deal with that feeling flexibly.
0: So it's like a prolonged exposure type of therapy. It is related to prolonged exposure. That's exactly right. Yeah, that that's amazing. So it's it's agility, mental agility training, but that happens to focus on the grief event.
1: That's exactly right. Learning what it feels like to have grief, which is especially important for people who are really trying to avoid that experience of feeling <laughs> yes. grief, which is very common. Uh, and also to be able to pay attention to the present moment. Who is with you here now? How do you feel connected to the people around you?
0: Which leads me to the final question or a talking point is the, mm-hmm. the restoration of, of a meaningful life after these events happen.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think when people ask, when will this end? They want these waves of grief to stop. But I think, you know, if we only think about you know, when are we feeling better, as just being when the waves of grief knock us over less often, I'm not really sure that that's what people mean by feeling like they've adapted, feeling like they've accepted the death. And so we also think about meaning making, as you described, how do we understand this chapter of our life? And how do we imagine the next chapter of our life? So that sort of narrative therapy can be very helpful. But even just thinking through, um, what is it that I'm feeling now? What am I enjoying now? How might I do a little bit more of that, connect with a few more people or have a deeper conversation so that I can actually use what I've learned. This desire to seize the day sometimes is what people derive as insight. Or other people feel like I had no idea that, you know, these people I didn't know I would become so close to were going to be so supportive of me. So figuring out how to really have a restored and having learned something in life as well.
0: So would you say it's um, a a type of post-traumatic growth?
1: I think that's the perfect word for it. That's actually the word I would use. But I would just also caution, this is an insight experience. No one can tell you what you will learn. A device is really not a good idea because it's not the person's own lived experience. So it is post-traumatic growth, but it has to be generated internally.
0: I do like what you're saying about the grief recovery or processing mm. journey. Is mm-hmm. is the inside experience, right? Like you have mm-hmm. to you have to be willing to go in in order yeah. to go through.
1: Yeah, and I guess that's, that's
0: the scary part for many.
1: It's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. <laughs> yeah. It takes enormous courage and resilience. And we find, of course, that it goes better if we have support. And I say that both in a social support typical kind of way. We need our friends and family. But I think we also need to remember that bereavement is a health disparity. So even with COVID-19, we've seen the rates of mortality are very different in different communities. And that means the rates of grieving are very different as well. And we need to think about supports for people who are experiencing grief on lots of different levels.
0: I think. Also, the normalization and validation of grief, Mm -hmm. because I think as a Western society, the way we handle death and loss, you know, Mm -hmm. we sort of we outsource it and annex it from our experience. You know, we used to it all used to happen in the home. Right. Yes, that's absolutely
1: right. It was <laughs> there. W- it was much harder to feel that this person might walk back in the door when you had sat for days with their body. Right. Right. Yes. You have all these memories of them. Well, that's not really how it happens anymore. And although I'm not necessarily suggesting we should go back to that, there have to be ways for us to talk about it with each other. In fact, part of the point of the book, really, is you know I hope people take something good away from the lens that I give them. Them, but i mostly hope it's a it's a reason to have a conversation with your with your good friends or your colleagues about what you're experiencing.
0: I I highly recommend this book uh, as somebody who is experiencing a bit of it myself, The Grieving (laughs) Brain, The Surprising Science of How We learn from Love and Loss. My guest today, who I'm so grateful for you to be here, is Mm -hmm. Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor. To learn more about Mary Frances's work, please visit MaryFrancesOConnor.com. And on Twitter, you can connect at Dr. MFO. Mary Frances, thank you so much. It was a real delight to talk with you, Lisa. Oh, I feel the same way. (laughs) Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen on behalf of my guest, Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to one another. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes from our mental muscle toning libraries at harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com, toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, Amazon, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about my global consulting services, please visit. HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting happiness and following me on Twitter at Lisa cayman Harvesting Happiness is produced by me, Lisa Cypress cayman Andrea Mengeli, Robin Boyd, Andrea Daly, and the awesome team at Podfly Productions, including Eric Begay, Kimberly Beck, and Alec Gus, in collaboration with TokiNet Radio, KBUU Radio Malibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.